0: I'm good, and we will uh, be joined in the studio at some point very shortly, hopefully by Anne Pettifor, um, who is who is on her way here and slightly delayed by London's uh, uh, terrifying and 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 rather shambolic transport system. But we've plenty of things to talk about before uh, Anne arrives, of course. Um, but I would say also, um, as you've just heard, maybe just before this show has gone out. Uh, Resonance FM, our hosts and and partners in bringing you this show, are having their annual Resonance fundraiser, Resonance is supported, by its listener donations uh, and that's running from this Saturday through to this Sunday so that's the 11th to the 19th of February uh, and if you go to fundraiser.resonance.fm you can find information on how to give uh, and some of the stuff that's going on to help raise money for the station I would really encourage you to do that Resonance is a vital part uh, of London's media ecology uh, and, and it does and I would encourage those of you who listen to this show and maybe don't hear some of the other stuff Resonance puts out you can go to the, the site and, and have an explore there it's really very much worth your time. Time uh, and it's also worth your time having it on in the background on 104.4 FM. Uh, now available also on DAB. Um, so uh, last night we ran uh, a very exciting uh, uh, event. It was uh, it was our first uh, first proper real big live event, uh, uh, sort of uh, Novara IRL mm. panel uh, chaired by me, uh, but also including Paul Mason. Uh, long-term friend of the show and occasional guest. Uh, Zoe Williams, who has been on uh, our, our sort of uh, video arm before. Uh, Sean Berry, who's well known to listeners of this show and Ash Sarkar, who of course is well
1: known here as well. An
0: amazing, amazing crowd and amazing turnout as well. I don't know how you felt about it.
1: I thought it was really outstanding. The video of that event's going up onto uh, the Navarra Media YouTube account later on today. Oh, we're being joined by our guest here, yeah. Hi Ann, how are you?
2: I'm very well. I'm so sorry. <laughs> good, good.
1: Well, so uh, last night we had this uh, really superb event, James. And actually, watching uh, watching it back this morning, really, really uh, brought home how excellent it was. How excellent you were, expertly <laughs> chaired by the one and only James Butler, like, Piers Penhaligon. Like I say, that'll be up later on today. More of those events coming over the course of uh, the next 12 months. We'll be looking to do a big uh, sort of set piece Navara IRL. Probably every two months, we'll be doing live podcasts intermittently, other live bits and bobs, maybe even a club night at Labour Party conference. Oh god! This autumn, <laughs> you know, what a terrifying thought. We'll, we'll uh, sweep up all the dweebs. <laughs> to listen to some really good music but it was excellent and if you want to be amongst the first people to hear about those events in the future go to support.novaramedia.com that's support.novaramedia.com you can be a subscriber for as little as one pound a month subscribe and then you'll be the first to hear about these events because we sold i think two-thirds of the tickets in less than two days two subscribers so while the price of tickets will be the same for everybody you may not be able to get them without being a subscriber so go to support.novaramedia.com no further ado. James, back over to you.
0: Great. Uh, and Anne Pettifour has now joined us in the studio. Welcome, Anne, zoomed down here from Baker Street on London's shambolic transport system, uh, one of the things that, that might require a big Keynesian push, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, Anne is a distinguished economist who I think now rather famously predicted the great crash of 07, 08, uh, 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 one of a few uh, mm-hmm. and, and a small few. Uh, and has raised kind of consistent challenges to neoclassical economic orthodoxy. She is the author of a new book, The Production of Money, which outlines a strong Keynesian influence approach to some of the most pressing questions of our time and argues strongly that a grasp of finance is essential uh, if the left, if the left of all stripes, is going to be able to really deal with the mess that we're in. So Anne, um, welcome to the show. Hi. uh, and I, I want to start with, and you mentioned it briefly in the book, a discussion about some of the events of the last year uh, here in the UK. And we're heading down the road now to something that's, kind of, that's likely to be a kind of uh, epoch-defining event for us, certainly, yes. uh, which is Brexit. Yes. And from the perspective of an economist, uh, especially one pretty skeptical about things like capital mobility,
2: yeah. should we have seen it coming? Absolutely, we should have seen it coming. Um, and um, Karl Polanyi wrote this book in 1944, *The Great Transformation*, and explained the rise of fascism, and said that what what happens if 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 uh, governments try to detach markets from regulatory democracy, i.e. from the oversight of society and allows them just to float around out there in the stratosphere and do as they please. And of course they then fool around and make a load of money and crash the system every so often and destroy the lives of thousands if not millions of people. And governments sit on their hands essentially. So what we're seeing in Britain is that that's what's happening here. Now, just uh, two weeks ago, there was a wonderful story in the Times about a little cafe, a little tea shop in a castle, Highgate, Highcliffe Castle, I think it's called, in, in Dorset. And this little cafe, this little tea shop, tea room, I think they call them down there, um, has been run by uh, one person for the last 17 years. And all the locals know the tea room and they all like it and so on. Well, the council decided to put out to tender. So they tender it. And who wins the tender but a billion corporation, Aramark, which is based in Philadelphia and which owns prisons and canteens around the world. Now, you can imagine the chap that owns that tea shop is now out of business. But the thing is, that's called competition. That's like calling a fight between a minnow and a shark free competition. That ain't no competition. That is slaughter on a grand scale. And so that that gentleman, um, his name I think is Sean Kearney, is going to be one of those that Mrs May defined as the left behind, or that we define as the left behind. And um, I don't think that either the conservative government certainly not the Liberals and also not Labour, rarely care much about the fact that big global corporations that can move money across borders effortlessly, whereas you and I, to cross a border, face barriers. You know, we may have free movement in Europe, but there are still barriers. You know, there's money. Can we afford to travel? Secondly, you know, there's emotional cultural barriers. Can we speak the language, etc., etc.? Money doesn't have any of those barriers. Money has an absolute advantage over the rest of us. And that's why it can fly in, gobble up a little tea room in Dorset, and fly out. No doubt the next step will be to make the staff redundant, to modernize it or whatever they call that process. Mm -hmm. And who knows, pretty soon the tea room will prove uh, unprofitable and it'll be closed, right? And then um, at least it won't just be unprofitable. It will not make the same capital gains that Aramark Corporation can make by gambling on on the international capital markets mm. so its gain, its profits will be compar- compared to capital gains and when you do that there's just no chance any little tea room could win now that in a microcosm is the story of what's happening to britain and of mm-hmm. course it's happening to our nhs it's happened to our railways it's happening to the nuclear power industry etc etc and and All the political parties are sitting on their hands. I just want to say one more thing. When you say the word Keynesian, everybody thinks tax and spend. And that's how his enemies defined Keynes right Keynes actually was far more radical that let's face it, he was also an old fashioned capitalist and he was a member of the British establishment no way he he was he was like Darwin yes,
0: in the class war I am on the side of the educated bourgeoisie I think it's, yes, it's, it's but it's the a, point is that Cain's he was like, like
2: Darwin, he had yeah. these ideas, but he was terribly frightened of what it would do to his friends you know yeah, in yeah, the, yeah. in the city of London in in the Bank of England and in the treasury so but but his ideas were in... You know, he was the one who argued for the, Ron, the, the euthanasia of the Rontier. And for him, tax and spend... Um, was just you should never get to the position where you're actually having to use fiscal policy mm. because your your economy should be purring along nicely because you've managed financial and monetary policy, and it's precisely because he focused on money and capital mobility and so on that he's been his reputation has been ruptured and destroyed, you know, by by mm. you know guess who by the City of London and their friends. There was something of
1: a renaissance around Keynes. Immediately following the crisis, wasn't there? You were a part yeah, of that. But there yeah. was the Skidelsky. Yeah,
2: yeah. Skidelsky suddenly biography. became favourite. Yeah. Right, and
1: there was the a <laughs> the little one, Kane's Return of the Master. Yeah, yeah, yeah And yeah. that embodied a certain moment straight after the crisis, actually right in the middle of it, to be quite frank, towards yeah. the end of 2008, where people thought, right, including myself, the gloves are off, yeah. neoliberalism's over, the yeah. choice now is sort of social democracy or something just arcane and unimaginable. Yeah. And that never happened. No. That moment never came to pass. No. And it was almost ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, it feels like yesterday. God, You've been yeah. saying these things for a while. We've been saying these things for a while. So it's we,
2: ten years. It's, ago. It's
1: fresh. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the the you know, we see a crisis in the US mortgage market ten years ago. It was the yes. spring summer of two thousand and seven. Yeah. Why wasn't that moment taken more seriously in the proposals of Keynes and some of the people who are arguing them? Yourself, people like Skidelsky. Why weren't they, ta- they taken more seriously by? political and policy establishments because initially we saw huge amounts of stimuli come on um, both fiscal and monetary uh, across the world. I mean, South Korea was investing huge amounts of money in renewables and all kinds of new economy stuff. Gordon Brown seemed to be ebbing towards that direction Mm. policy-wise. So what were the constraints there? Why didn't that come to pass? Because it seemed like a a sensible, if not the right uh, response to what was at the time a A financial crisis, which has since become a fiscal crisis, uh, a crisis of production. And it's an ongoing financial crisis. A depression almost, yeah.
2: Yeah. So two things. One, the left, and by that I mean the left across the board, had no idea what had happened, right? If in your uh, analytical model, and that applies not just to the left, by the way, to the economists as well. Economists don't include money, banks or debt in their models and they don't teach money, banks or debt in their curricula, right? So if you have a complete blind spot for what the finance sector is doing, then you don't see it when it crashes and you have no answer to what to do when they fall down, basically. And that, I think, is at the core of the response. So, but on the left, there was just shock horror, but we've we've never discussed the finance sector. We don't know what capital, what's capital, capital mobility is something evil, isn't it? Uh, Don't we believe in globalization? We're all in favor of globalisation, it means the internet, it means being kind to strangers, it means travelling abroad, you know. So, whoa, we can't do anything about globalisation. So we have this, because we've bought into and we've sold out our base, um, and this applies particularly to the social democratic parties, we're all bought into the finance story. Mm. Okay, You can't manage without the City of London. So that's number one. And Alistair Darling, by the way, Kind of eased up straight away with some crazy fiscal stimulus, like for example, selling off second-hand cars, mm. um, which was, you know, environmentally deeply unsound and, and screwed up the, the second-hand Wasn't car market. Was there a certain
1: amount of money as well when you bought a new car in two thousand nine? Yeah, there was some. Yes, Mandelson's that's brainchild, right, right? yes. Yeah, so <laughs> you, you, like you get two grand off if you buy a new car. Yeah,
2: no, crazy stuff. <laughs> you know, taxpayers paying for people who could afford to buy a new <laughs> yeah. car, buying a new car. Yeah. But uh, so the, the, the stimulus was actually tiny, and that's because the Treasury is so deeply, deeply orthodox. Mm. They were terrified of any kind. Now, the thing is, with the slump, immediately government debt rises. Why? Because immediately fa- the private sector fails. Businesses go bust. People lose their jobs. They don't pay taxes. And immediately the, the debt goes up. And immediately the left panics. Oh, my God, the debt has gone up. Yeah. Not, oh, my God, the financial system has crashed the whole economy yeah. and let's do something about this thing, this railway, the steam roller that keeps coming and crashing. We didn't even look at the steam roller. Instead we looked at the bodies on the ground, you know, run off by um, sorry about that you know, run off by the crisis and worry about that. So it's about a perspective that we didn't have. Secondly, it is true there was a massive stimulus and it was mainly from China. China yeah. saved the world. Yeah. In the same way that, that Japan had saved the world in 1989 when uh, there was a very big, the biggest stock market crash ever. Um, so China saves the world, starts to spend like crazy. And, um, and, and revs up her whole economy, which is good for the rest of the world, and this begins to get things going again. But the
1: good for Australia it's good for resource it exporters. It was fantastic it's good for Australia yeah. and
2: so on. You yeah. know, so all of the economies around China did quite well. But yeah. so did the rest of the world. Actually, she yeah. really did help. China did help to pull things up. But um, the the dogmatism and the ideology embedded in the IMF, the World Bank, the OECD, uh, and every Treasury, Western Treasury in the world, meant oh, my God, the, the debt has risen and we can't, we can't spend any more money. Now, when the private sector collapses automatically, almost as a sort of automatic reaction, the public sector rises. What the public, the government has to do then, because the private sector cannot do it, is to pump money into the system to start spending, to create jobs which then generate income and taxes, but above all else, believe it or not... That helps the private sector, okay? Instead, we left the big hole in the economy and we said to the private sector, fix yourselves. And the private sector can't, even today... Um, mortgage lending, for example, is 50 cent, 50% below what it was before the crisis. That means ordinary people ain't going out and taking out mortgages in reality in the way they were before. Now, before the crisis, they were being a bit crazy. Mm. But
1: but the base revenue is so low as well. That's remarkable, isn't it?
2: Yeah. And that means that people are nervous. They yeah. don't want to take risk. And if, and the really other bizarre thing that happened after the crisis was that we invented banks for the purpose of lending into the real economy. That's all what mm banks are for, right? The banks bankrupted themselves through their own speculation because Glass Steagall allowed them to go crazy and go gambling, and we just sat back and allowed that to happen because, you know, it after all it was Bill Clinton's idea and Larry Summers' idea. And Larry Summers, after all is one a big shot economist, you know, this is
0: just to say for our listeners, the yes. Glass Steagall was the act uh, brought in after the Depression to prevent uh, banks from they had to separate commercial they had to separate of, their
2: retail yeah. businesses of dealing with your accounts from their speculation business basically yeah. Yeah. their gambling business and 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 Bill Clinton and Larry Summers said, no, that's not a good idea, let's merge the two things because the banks had lobbied them, right? Now, the left didn't even know, I think, that that had happened. The left, the Democrats didn't really know that it happened and didn't even care. After all, that means I can get a credit card. That means I can travel, you know, everything's hunky-dory and I can go shopping and buy handbags for 11,000 pounds a time.
1: Quick question, why are politicians so illiterate around this stuff? So in 2000, like we go back to 2007 again, there was this immediate response I thought I was actually overwhelmed at how sort of the screen insulated it was as an idea. They, they realised the state very quickly would have to play a bigger role. Yeah. I mean, and it, that was emblematic of that was, you know, ridiculous policies like here's two grand to buy a new Range Rover or something.
2: Yeah. And Which boosted the foreign car market. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, we, we, we can talk about that later. Yeah. But all that obviously has an overhead. You're putting huge amounts of liquidity into banks, you're going to make new investments into the economy. That will mean, if you really mean that, government debt will go up, deficits will go up. Yep. But within literally six months, centre-left politicians, who one minute were saying, yeah, we need a stimulus, were saying, oh no, we can't put money into you know Sheffield Forge Masters glass. No, or, exactly. oh, oh, they were like, panicking. Yeah, we were to blame for the crisis. Now, what I want to know is these are intelligent people. They went to top universities, they're holders of public office, yeah. not just in Britain,
2: Yeah.
1: actually Pretty much across the developed world, the, yeah. all advanced economies, the exception arguably of the United States. Yeah. Tesla and SpaceX wouldn't exist without you know government intervention, federal Nor would loans. Apple,
2: because you know Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs stole all of the software from the mil- yeah. American military, financed by American taxpayers. Microsoft as well, right? I think it's early mm, contracts were government. I'm not so sure their stuff is so bad. I, c- I wouldn't attribute it to the American military.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a good move. But yes, yeah, so a quick question, really, yeah. uh, and it, I suppose it doesn't need a long answer. Why were the political not even establishments, MPs in the Labour Party and Democratic Party in the German SPD. Why were they so illiterate in that bridge between yes, we need a stimulus and then following through and having the the leadership to say we will temporarily need increased deficits and debt will go up?
2: Yeah. Well, because the right are just smarter than than the left. That's all. The right have turned Government debt into a demon. They've turned governments into evil, you know, uh, troublemakers really, and so government is evil and private is good. And even when cri- private is on its knees and crashed and destroyed, it's still good, and mm-hmm. government still must not touch. And I have to say, so that's on the one hand, you know, what both the left and the right, in a sense, have bought on t- into. You know, the Labour Party also privatised mm-hmm. large, large swathes of the public sector. So let's not mess around here. Everybody was bought into this. But, you know, and I'm sorry, I, I know you did say the answer should be short, but the re- and this is what my book is about, is that it's the economics profession. You know, the economics profession spends its time sort of managing the minute, tiny, sort of minor issues here on the ground. How many people are there in a firm? You know, what likelihood have they got? Blah, blah. And so we focus on the micro, and we don't focus on the macro. Now, that I don't think that's accidental. I think that is un- ideological. But then when we suddenly have a macro crisis, we draw conclusions from the household budget, from Mrs. Jones's budget, to how the government should operate. In other words, we use microeconomic reasoning to come to macroeconomic conclusions. Now that's what Wolfgang Schäuble is doing right now as he punishes Greece, as he insists on austerity across the whole, as he brings down the whole Eurozone project. It's based on household budget economics, right? And who teaches household budget economics? The economics profession. So my book is fundamentally a massive attack on the economics <laughs> profession. And there's a lovely quote in it from a guy called Satyajit Das, who's a good old bad, big uh, capital markets trader. And he's got a little quote in the book, uh, and he says, you know, finances is, uh, is really not understood by, by most people working in the markets, and those in regulators and officials understand it even less. And why might that be? He says, well, he says, it might be like the wolf in the fairy tale. All the better to fleece you with. (laughs) Now, I I have this... And it is a conspiracy theory, I have to admit to one, although I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I have this idea that the economics profession's done a deal with the finance sector. You do as you please, we promise to ignore you, right? We're not going to teach money, banks, and debt, and you go out into the world and screw up the world, and we and then we'll stand aside when the Queen approaches us and asks, Why didn't you see this coming? And we say, Oh, nothing to do with me, Gov. It's that it's that pole dancer in Florida who insisted on borrowing and taking out five mortgages, and because Goldman Sachs flogged her five mortgages at 15%, which she was never, ever going to repay. That's it's her fault. Nothing mm, to do mm. with me, the economist. And so that's why last Wednesday, when I had to, when I, I was invited by the economics department of the London School of Economics to deliver a lecture, I've never been so frightened in all my <laughs> life, really. And I was really expect, and I was mauled pretty well, but um, they won't mm-hmm. be pleased, really. Uh, but it is also an indication that they are. Um, they are opening up. They mm. are beginning to understand that their their view has been too narrow. That they've had a blind spot for the finance. And now what they're trying to do is. To put the finance sector into their dynamic, stochastic, uh, general mm-hmm. equilibrium models, you know. <laughs> yeah. In other words, they're not changing their worldview, but they think, oh, let's put put a bit something in about money. About
0: yeah, it. let's build a let's build an extension to it. Or something
2: yes, exactly, than, and than that's like house. patching yeah. up some very bad so- software. You know, yeah. it just ain't going to work. You got to you got to change the whole construct. Yeah. Sorry.
0: I, I mean, I know. Yeah. I mean, I think I think things are changing a bit, right? When I mean, you have kind of Steve Keen and and people like yourselves yeah. gradually making inroads in, in and yeah. stuff like this. So I think it, I think it's. I, suppose interesting I have to say
2: that none of us, or none of them, and certainly not me, um, have got good jobs in economics yeah, yeah, departments yeah. with lovely salaries and pensions <laughs> and get published <laughs> yeah, in, yeah, in all the high places. Uh, yeah, that's
0: certainly true. It strikes me, it's, it's some of the stuff you're talking about, and, and as we've been talking about Brexit and, and some of the stuff that, that also comes from the, the you know, the way that political parties have approached globalisation with this kind of unanimity, right? Yes. Um, right away from the social democratic parties to, to, to sort of right-wing yeah. globalisers. Um, and it, it's a problem that, that really struck me when reading... Uh, Wolfgang Strache recently yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, is that this problem of globalization is how a nationally bounded political regime deals with that problem of internationalized capital? Yes. And have, you know those, those kind of capital flows yeah. and, you know, and particularly how it can be done without losing prosperity right this is the, the, yeah, the yeah. big anxiety so I suppose you know, and I'm thinking of, of something here when you, you think of someone like Keynes writing economic consequences of the peace in 1919 well, the economic consequences of Brexit mm-hmm. um, you yeah. know because today we see there's a story in the Times I just saw just before we came on air that, that there's a leaked government memo about dividing British industry into high, medium and low priorities of yeah, Brexit negotiations that. and the medium and low priorities includes electronics fisheries chemicals, oh. uh, steel is low, construction is low. And you know what?
2: They're all high labor-intensive yeah, industry. Yeah, yeah. So don't so, care about the working man.
0: Yeah, so what are the economic consequences of this kind of Brexit going to yeah. look like?
2: Well, the point is this, that, you know, Mrs May is so uh, hypocritical, and I don't know if she even realizes that she's hypocritical, because I, I, I think the same about Labor and the, and the liberals, really, about the problem. So the problem is, oh, we've got to be... We've got to be worrying about the left behind, you know, that chap that owns the tea room in Dorset. But at the same time, we're going to be global, right? We're going to be a global Britain. Now, I'm quite convinced that we're going to be able to trade right? If little countries in Africa can trade without being members of the European Union and when they come up against lots of barriers, but, you know, we're going to be able to trade and, and I, I don't lose my confidence in that ability. And I think a lot of economists went over the top when they said it would be the end of the world. It won't be the end of the world. But we are, what I think is appalling is that we are saying we are going to be on our lonesomes. We don't need Kind of quite easy access to a huge market where we have lots of friends and where it 's easy for me to send over my lamb from Wales mm. and sell it to the french um, we're now it 's now going to be very hard to get across those barriers and at the same time we 're going to allow the finance sector to run the world basically we allow the city of London effectively and indeed we may even pay. Taxpayers may even subsidise the City of London's access to the European market yeah, yeah. Uh, through passports or the, something called equivalence. Mm. Um, so, and that may need funding, right? And we're going to find the money. Don't worry, we'll find the money if it's for the city of London. It may not find it if it's for so the steelworks up in the north, yeah. right? But we'll find it for the city of London. And then we're going to find 64 billion bucks to pay back the, the EU and so on. And don't worry, we'll find that too, right? So when it comes to the crunch, we never, ever run out of money because we are a government and we have a central bank. We're not a household that, you know, has to go and earn the money every month and wait for it to come at the end of the month. We have a bank that effectively... Uh, generates the finance um, that the government needs, not that the economy needs, that the government needs, and that the banks Mm. need, and that's another point. I want to make a distinction between those two. But, um, so I... I think it's, it's going to be rough and originally, it's going to be really tough for our exporters who were ready. But anyway, exports are only a tiny part of our economy they're only about 10%. The real issue is that there's going to be lots of people who are going to lose their jobs and I don't see this government and I don't see the Labour Party talking about creating full employment in Britain willy nilly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I have not seen the the terms full employment used by the Labour Party very often by its leaders. So you're referring specifically to the new leadership, the newish leadership? The new leadership and even the old leadership. It's an old fashioned idea that everybody should have a job. But we we expect that to be changed, right? And then I see the left saying, oh, we don't need jobs, we just want basic incomes. you know, Come (laughs) on, guys, get real. We need people to have work. Um, I'm not against people getting uh, some some subsidised income, but I I think it's outrageous to, to. sort of just lie on your backs in a very defeatist way and say, look, the robots can do the job. Let's allow those millions of young people that don't have a can't see their futures and not have a job, you know. And why isn't the Labour Party... So, in other words, Mrs May is still focused on the global economy and not on the domestic mm. economy.
1: So, that, if you would say to John MacDonald, here's a really good frame, it's outstanding politics, it'll be popular, full employment. Yeah. People already get... The, I agree with you, and you never hear those words really coming out of their mouths somebody like a Paul Mason, yeah. who they do listen to says well, what we need to do is we need to go to somewhere like Stoke. And he, he uses the metaphor of coming down like a sort of spaceship. And the spaceship would be huge amounts of fiscal stimulus, But we say, here's literally 150 billion pounds to build x, y, z, it's not going to build the train tracks, or the roads to the regional hub, but we're actually gonna build the jobs, the factories, the infrastructure, the schools, the university infrastructure, the energy infrastructure right here, that would, I suppose, be coterminous with your ideas around full employment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure you know, about Paul's ideas, because and, and, I don't know what he means particularly by that, but what I do know is there's a hell of a lot that needs doing, mm. right? For a start, we're a tiny little island and we're threatened by climate change. We have, you know, we have the risk of flooding all around our coast. People have got houses built on our coastlines. We've got cities on coastlines, for God's sake. London is on on an estuary, right? We have a huge issue of having to, first of all, um, retrofit our housing because it's incredibly energy inefficient. We just lose, you know, heat out of the windows. It's criminal, actually. Yeah. It's criminal. Yeah. And so that, you can do that. You don't have to go to Stoke to do that. You can, you have to do that everywhere, you know, every old Victorian house. And that requires manual labor. It requires engineers. It requires architects. It requires skilled, you know, it, lots of that stuff. All of that has to be done at home. Now, you know, you can't, you don't have to import that stuff necessarily from China. Of course, there's stuff you're going to want to have to re- Import, but but we could even make retro. We can even retrofit houses with straw, for God's sake, you know, or mud even. So there are we have it at our at our we Word. have at our fingertips quite a lot of the resources we need, just to fix our economy in preparation for climate change, mm. and that that's a huge threat to our security as a nation.
0: The finance sector recognises this, by the way, because it's very difficult to get flood insurance these days. Yes,
2: exactly, and people and but the real estate sector is still selling and building yeah, houses yeah. up in these flood plains. I mean, so, so there's a lot of work to be done, but, but I don't hear the political parties talking about that.
1: Just for listeners out there, climate change, I mean, it's such a nebulous thing. What does it mean? We, 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 we will be doing a lot more shows on climate change over the course of the year. It is the big issue of the 21st century want to impress the point that once we move beyond a two, three degree world, it very quickly slips to four, five, six. The world really isn't inhabitable for the vast majority of the human population. We have
2: the extreme weather events. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: And we need to build in resilience in relation to that. And Britain in particular has a number of problems. So, of course, rising sea levels. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the issue of... um, We may no longer be in this wonderful little microclimate in the North Atlantic. It may suddenly get a lot, lot colder. We may have very hot summers and incredibly wet, Mm -hmm. flood-prone winters. So uh, yeah, it's been raining for last week, right? So yeah, we need to build in that resilience as soon as possible now energy infrastructure by the way it can't really be solar because we don't get very much sun so it'll probably have to be a mix of wind and solar but actually this stuff will be competitive with hydrocarbons in the next five to ten years without subsidies yeah. Uh, yeah. so we could, we-, we could be doing this all within yeah. five years Yeah. Just doing but we may not that. even
2: need that much energy if we just made our houses and our properties more energy efficient. Well,
1: we're, we're using a lot we less energy. We save a lot of money. The know. last 10 years, the average Brit's using
0: something like 12% less energy or yeah, something. But right. I mean, that's a good thing because that, the UK energy network is in a creaking and terrible state. Yeah, it has yeah. almost no spare capacity whatsoever. Yeah. It's but really it's also really because boring.
2: of weakness in in the economy, of yeah. course, that... Yeah. we've yeah. had but yes no and it, people are getting smart about um you know insulating their homes and their roofs and all of that stuff and so yeah there's hope yeah. but we need leadership as well it's not enough for individuals who are yeah. doing it on the ground i mean one of
0: the things i think that was striking about the book is i, feel, I felt i a real sense of urgency and that the book was being written at a moment where things were in flux which yeah. they are uh, and it feels very much there's a, very much a sense in it that, that we're at a crunch time and it, it, it in some ways, echoes kind of the the canes of the interwar period. he right? yeah. 's sort of desperately trying to to to, to articulate that a sense that the kind of uh, the orthodoxies and the policy instincts and the tools that are available mm-hmm. to governments aren't quite aren't quite right or quite, aren't quite adequate to the yes. present moment. So. It, yeah. I mean, is it so serious? And where are the roots of the present moment? Because I, I think I get a sense in, in your work that really it goes goes as far back as kind of the, the profit, for profitability crisis of the late 60s, early 70s.
2: Right. I think it goes back to 1971 when Richard Nixon went on television after a big cowboy series had ended on American TV and said, excuse me, but unilaterally, I'm going to uh, dismantle the whole of the Bretton Woods international financial architecture without asking anybody. I haven't talked to the IMF. I haven't talked to the Europeans, I haven't talked to anybody. I'm just going to say, no, you can't have gold. You see, because in those days, the the Americans had to had to build up a surplus and they'd built up a massive deficit on their external current account, you know, imports-export, because they were fighting a war in Vietnam. And they and, and the French, oh, girl, you know, de Gaulle was saying, I don't want your greenbacks, give me your bars of gold, you know. And they were running out of bars of gold in Fort Knox. So what he should have done... Didn't he send a ship over? Well, yeah, he may have done. To pick up the gold, I think I, he did, yeah. I think, but the point is that that what... A poor country has to do in Africa, when it gets into those sorts of difficulty, is to structurally adjust its economy mm. in order to build up a surplus. So he would have said to the Americans, you've got to tighten your belts, mate, because, you know, we, 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 haven't, got a, we haven't made a surplus on the foreign account. We're going to have to work harder and produce more. Instead, he said if you don't like these little green pieces of paper that I'm, I'm throwing at you, tough, you know, I'm gonna, just, I'm gonna default on my obligations to repay you in gold. And gold was really symbolic of, as a, there's another whole story there. And I'm going to say, in the end, the asset that the world now uses as a kind of measure of stability around the world, it's difficult to explain, it's the reserve mm-hmm. currency, is American debt. Okay. Yeah. Buy an American bond which says I promise to repay you in 30 years and you put that in your little Rwandan central bank and that says you've got a strong asset and it is a strong asset because the Americans always repay their debts. But we are, that means the American just issuing debts. You know, Imagine if you were a household and you could just go around saying, you know, I fancy having um, another house in the Caribbean. Here's a bond, blah, <laughs> and people buy this bond and say, oh, thank you, thank you very much for giving me your debt. And this is what I'm going to base the whole of the global economy on. So America's now in a position where it has this massive deficit with the rest of the world, but it blames the rest of the world for the deficit. It says, oh, it's because China was building up savings, you know, and they were – but what was happening was that – the Americans thought, well, you know, we just have to issue debt and then we can go shopping, and that's what they've done. they go shopping in China. Walmart does all their shopping in China. You, the Chinese make the stuff, and then there's Chinese demand payment, and the Chinese have built up a massive surplus, and the Americans are deficit, and the Americans are blaming the Chinese for that.
1: A couple of things. First of all, the Chinese are quite happy with that arrangement, in for a For the in a a moment, sense.
2: for the moment, they're ch- <laughs> having to change tune, yeah. yeah.
1: And then secondly, I mean, Donald Trump does say things which are true, which are correct. So he said that America is suffering because the Germans have an undervalued currency which helps their exporters, which is the Euro. That's true. The Chinese have undervalued their currency. That's true. So these are the two exporting powerhouses uh, aside from Japan, which America is is competing with for uh, market share. Yes in a whole range of industries and they can't compete as well as they'd like to because of these undervalued currencies. So where does that fit in? Because the Germans and the Chinese aren't, aren't, you know,
2: innocent here either. No, I just also want to say that, you know, don't think the Americans don't fiddle with their their currency either, you know, and and so on. So, um, yeah. Now the thing about Germany is that Germany has worked out a really skillful scheme whereby she can place the blame for the value of the currency on the Greeks, right? It's nothing to do with me, says uh, Mr. Schäuble, but the structure of the the Eurozone and the ECB is what has made it uh, weak. And Germany doesn't think she has to compensate or accept any adjustment herself in Mm. order to benefit from the Greek valuation of the currency. So, that's what's really wicked about the way the Germans say, this is nothing to do with me. Um, So, it's kind of a clever way of structuring this thing. But Germany, on the other hand, is doing what every democratic government should be doing. They're looking after their own. Okay. They're looking after their own. And China also is looking after her own. And China has also managed her currency to look after her own. And she has to because if China has social unrest. Then God help us all. Okay. If the Communist Party collapse and, and there's upheaval in China... You know who knows what will happen next, but anyway, that's just just a thing. So, so China, so I am in favour of con- democratic countries in particular, saying the interests of my people come first, right?
1: Germany's slightly different, isn't it? It's, it's a, it's a beggar, different. Beggar thy neighbour policy yeah. because they're beggaring their fellow Europeans.
2: Yes. So Ge- Germany has is part of the, con- and it's an auto liberal system. Yeah. And I have to say, we are complicit too, Mm. because we effectively drafted the Maastricht Treaty. It was British civil servants that designed the euro. Okay, and said the euro had to be detached from any government and not accountable to anybody, and we had to have central bank that it's could just Hayekian central yes, bank. it's yes. totally Hayekian, and and you know it all started in Anglo American economies. So don't let's be too holier than thou, really. But the fact is, the Germans are benefiting massively from it, and they just have a blind spot. They can't see this, or if they can. All they care about is winning the next election. Now for me, and this is a key issue about why globalization is wrong, which is that you cannot have markets that are detached from society. You know, we've had markets for 5,000 years but they've been being embedded in societies. They've worked for us, you know. The market trader hasn't been able to cheat on whether he's selling a pint of beer or a yard of cloth. So society's kept an eye on that, right? He hasn't been able to fool around with his stall and all that kind of thing, and he could only sell in certain places. We've done this because we manage this wonderful thing called a market in the interests of society, right? And we've always regulated markets. Now under globalization markets are, de- are self-regulating they look after themselves you know it's a really it's a really awful ideology in my view and it goes back you know to laissez faire and to the idea that you shouldn't interfere in the markets um because you know markets know best and all that nonsense and it goes back to a story told before by a guy called townsend who wrote before malthus who said mm. you know they told the story of how they'd put goats and dogs on an island, the Ferdinand Islands. And of course they, there was scarce amount of food, okay. So the goats and the dogs could have fought like cats and dogs and killed each other and beat each other up. And eventually they came to some state of equilibrium in which they kind of worked out who gets what on that island. So he says that's how we should run the economy, right? We don't need governments to interfere. let Let the dogs and the goats fight to the death. Now we're allowing markets to fight to the death on their own there, except when they get into trouble, then, of course, taxpayers have to bail them out. But you know, and, and they are fighting to the death and, and they're destroying the economies and we're saying nothing to do mm. with, I'm ranting and raving, you better <laughs> shut to, me up.
0: To, I want to ask a question, I want to think a little bit about kind of policy and, and, yeah. and the kind of policy responses based to crisis. There's an interesting line from Cambridge political economist, Helen Thompson, who says, uh, she says that the Western, she's great, really great. She's Mm. working on a book on oil, which is is going to be really fascinating, I think. And she says, the Western economic and political world that was in place before 2008 no longer exists and is not coming back. Um, And she goes, you know, this is an article that that she wrote for for, uh, Sperry, Sheffield Political Economy uh, Research uh, Institute. Uh, and she, she goes on to outline kind of the the, the US debt, uh, which is something like sixty trillion in total yeah. um, consumer credit growth, but in particular kind of targets the absorption of, of policymakers into in you know transfixed by kind of money markets by, by financial yeah. markets uh, and and then talks about kind of the, the role of policies like quantitative easing and, and zero interest rate policy in in these being the kind of immediate and instinctive responses of policymakers to the, the kind of 2008 yeah. Crisis, um, and and yet these have trans these are transforming those markets, right. uh, and they're do- it's doing strange things, and and the right. situation we're in now doesn't look like that those can be repeated. Mm. So I guess my question: you out you, you talk a bit about kind of say the revival of a, a, an old Keynesian mm. proposal in the book, but I wonder what you think that the you know so I, I suppose it's a two part question really: if there is another crisis coming down the road, which mm-hmm. I think there probably is. Mm-hmm. Um, What policy tools are left to deal with it?
2: Well, there's virtually no monetary policy tools. And you need to know that the central banks in total around the world, the ECB, the Japanese bank and the Brits... Um, not the Americans are at the moment pumping out five hundred billion dollars every three months and that is not going into the real economy because QE is not money in the sense that you and I know it it 's going into the finance sector and effectively what it does is it cleans up their balance sheets for them and it 's like it 's like giving them an overdraft really it 's not money uh, they can 't spend it or well, they can spend it of course because when, when you when cl- you you know clear your overdraft then you 're able to go out and spend some more but it's still an overdraft you owe the bank and you have to go but it's not money that that then automatically goes into the economy in fact the banks have been hoarding all that stuff to keep their own balance sheets clean and i mean banks all the banks in the world in my view are effectively nationalized banks and that's why that world is not coming back again. Of course they'd still pretend Deutsche Bank is an independent bank, Barclays, all that nonsense. You know, they're not. Without without A QE and B very low, in fact, negative interest rates, they'd all be bust. So so that is going on. But but the point about it is this is this is Cameron's Um, uh, monetary radicalism and fiscal conservatism. What it means is your focus is on fixing the finance sector in the hope that the finance sector will fix the real economy. Mm. And policymakers are not looking at the real economy. The other thing is that um, the orthodoxy in economics is fixated on supply side stuff. You know, the workforce is not productive. Why? Because probably they're lazy. Probably they're inadequate. Probably they're not properly trained. All of that nonsense. The reason why the workforce is unproductive is because we've had collapses in investment. We've had collapses in training and skills and modernizing the workforce. And naturally, the workforce is... And furthermore, we've decided that we don't want full-time paid employees anymore, right? Mr. Osborne is very proud of the fact that he created more part-time workers and more zero hour contract hours workers and more self employed workers than anybody in the whole world. And he sees this as a huge achievement, right? Now, what that means is your focus and your resources are all going into the, this finance sector, which is still bust. And demand at home and by demand we mean people don't want to apply for mortgages they they're going shopping but they're buying cheap stuff from China whose prices are falling they they're not you know they're not using much energy the whole thing is still collapsed is still flat not just here but in Europe and in the United States which is why we've had deflation you know the money Mm -hmm. supply has shrunk and by the way it's the private banks that create the money supply, not the central bank. They, the private banks create ninety-five percent of the money supply every time they, they apply for a loan. Uh, you apply for a loan. The banks can just out of thin air put money in your bank if they think you're a, a viable borrower, and boom, the money supply expands. But can because they've the been doing the opposite, that it's going down, and so that's why we've had <clears throat> deflationary pressures, if not actual deflation. But-
1: See, one of the big questions for me but in the next... But have
2: I answered your question? Is, is the world going, going, going to be different? I think that, I think yeah. Was, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: One, of the, one of the sort of big question for me in the next 10, 20 years is, shouldn't we be having deflation? I mean, because you can have deflation when you have a massive increase in the supply of a certain good or service. And if you look at the trends with, energy's never been cheaper. But again, if solar and wind carry on the trajectories they're carrying on, we've known since the Boston Consulting Group, when you double the production of a manufactured good, its cost declined by 20%. Clearly, solar is going to grow a hell of a lot more than it currently is. It's already, I think, it may be 2% of global energy production now, which is really a lot given what it was just 10 years ago, it was negligible, didn't exist. Um, given what should happen with the price of energy, given what's happening with computational power, data storage, bandwidth, all of these, the cost of all of these things have plummeted. Mm-hmm. Now that has consequences in the real economy because increasingly the value of a car is the information, the computational power of the, com- the mm. car as opposed to the, the engine.
2: Yeah.
1: So A, deflation should be happening, shouldn't it? In, in any, if anything, it should be a lot more than it currently is. And that's a good thing. It's a good deflation, not a bad deflation. Right. And B, why isn't that happening? Why isn't it, Why aren't these trends as deflationary as they should be? Because that's what we saw at the end of the 19th century, right? When Bessemer Steel came online, we had big innovations in chemical engineering. All of a sudden, prices dropped and we had a sort of deflation, very competitive in a lot of markets, a lot of industries. Yeah. That's not been repeated this time around because of politics. But is that deflation of huge expansion and supply just not going to happen and if not,
2: why not? Can I ask you, have you got a mortgage? I have not got a mortgage, of course have not. You got, have you got a loan? I have a student loan. Have you got a student loan? Of course, right? yeah. What's the interest rate on your loan?
1: You know what? I have no idea. Right. It's pretty so low can, for now. Secondly, when they privatize you got an overdraft? It, when they privatise it, it'll be a lot higher.
2: Yeah, so when, have you got an overdraft?
1: I'm not in my I'm sorry draft. to be personal. I'm not in my draft. I do. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm not in my
2: I have to tell you, in a deflationary environment, the value of your loan rises. Mm. You don't see it rising. It just gets bigger and more expensive. And your rate of interest, you think, so let's, the way to think about it is this. Interest rates can't in reality go below naught. I mean, if they have done. It's so bizarre that people want to lend money to the German Bundesbank, Right. And normally, for the Bundesbank to borrow money from investors, they have to pay a rate of interest on it, just like when you borrow money, you have to pay a rate. Today, lenders are paying the Bundesbank to, to lend them money Now that is unprecedented in history. interest rates don't fall below zero, but your wage or your salary uh, or your income can fall below zero when that happens, if you' if you're uh, if your interest rate is at five percent and your wage falls, your interest rates in, in real terms rises to six or seven. But the goods and services six.
1: you're accessing are also getting cheaper.
2: Yeah but mean, excuse me we some are even very may become free right yeah that may be so well, it should but be we have free. a very very heavily indebted economy hmm. so you have to balance the fact that your debt is secretly and silently rising in cost while you're able to go up to oxford street and buy clothes for nothing right but in the meantime this huge burden of debt is rising inexorably now it may be okay for you because you you you're quite sensible. You've got a student. You've only got a student. Some corporations have got a huge I have amount of I've actually got a credit card as well. Yeah, and your credit card, by the way, you're not paying 0.25% on, on that. No. that no.
1: No, I'm, I'm good, Dan. I promise. Yeah, but, but, it's, <laughs> 100 quid, but yeah. if
2: you didn't pay it off in a month, you'd be paying 25% mm. on it. And mm. as that rises, 26, 27, 28%, that's going to bankrupt you. Okay? Yeah. So what bankrupted the pole dancer in Florida who took out a mortgage before the crisis was that interest rates went up in real terms. And her income didn't go up. In fact, it fell. I'm
1: going to be super quick, but do you not? Okay, so you're not, you not. So
2: deflation is a terribly, terribly bad. I know thing. it's a bad thing, but we can must it not be, never celebrate. Can it. it not
1: be a consequence of technological innovation leading to massive oversupply? That's
2: what the that's what the orthodox tell us. Um, there is massive oversupply, but the, there's reason oversupply is because people aren't buying. Hmm. You're, you're because enough. there's not enough, so you know, you, the Chinese are turning, <coughs> for example- That's under the,
1: consumption. I'm saying, let's no, say tomorrow no, no, all no. of a sudden we discover <laughs> a billion tons of gold, clearly the price of gold plummets. That's not because people don't want to buy gold anymore, it's because there's a lot more of it.
2: Well, take the Chinese, for example, they make rubber tires. So they, they go to, to Malina and they buy, or wherever they go to the Philippines, and they, they buy rubber from a rubber p- plantation three years in advance, and then they make the rubber tires. And when they come to sell the rubber tires, there's no, there's no buyers. There's no bias for the rubber tyres, so the price of rubber tyres plummets. The, the rubber tire company goes bust and closes. The rubber tire plantation goes close, closes and goes bust. The guys lose their jobs and they don't buy any rubber tires either. So I tell you, deflation is terrifying. Now, inflation does the opposite. When I took out a mortgage in my youth, which was 100 years ago, um, <laughs> you know, the bank manager called me in and I took out. we took out this mortgage, we, we had very quite precarious living, but my husband was an academic and we promised, for example, that we would stay married forever. <laughs> (laughs) We didn't. But anyway. (laughs) Um and on the basis of that he gave us a mortgage. But then we had inflation. And so, my mortgage fell in real terms. And by the time I came to repay the mortgage, I was paying less than I'd actually borrowed. Now, the city of London hates inflation with a, with a hatred that you would not right. believe, okay? So they want deflationary policies because it increases the price of their asset, which is debt. Right. Never mind rubber tires and all this fancy gear that you like. No, it's the debt they want to be expensive, yeah. and if there's a touch of inflation, they go berserk and policymakers go berserk and it's the end of the world. And that's why but you would benefit, or all of those who ha- have mortgages would benefit from inflation. For listeners,
1: very quickly, my final thing, because we've yes. got less than 10 minutes left, and that's why there's an emphasis on very low inflation with monetarist economics Absolutely. in the last 30 years. right? It's
2: always been because those are, monetarist policies are run by bankers and creditors and financiers and they hate, in, they hate inflation because it erodes the value of their biggest asset, which is debt. So, I don't want to hear anyone on the left saying, let's celebrate.
1: Deflation. I'm just saying there's two kinds, but James.
0: I want to talk a little <laughs> about capitalism. Capitalism. Um, right. So, one of the, the underlying assumptions, I think, of your work is that capitalism can be tamed. And you talk of echoing Keynes, you know, yeah. uh, finance.
2: Subordinated to become servants. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So finance is the useful servant rather than the stupid master. Yeah. Um, and the assumption is, I suppose, that the kind of taming that happened in the 20th century is repeatable. I wonder if that relies on kind of the, the underlying structures being the same. And I wonder whether, and this is the, the kind of critique that comes from people like Michael Roberts, that... The, 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 this kind of thinking, sees the problem with capitalism as being primarily in f- financial capitalism, yeah. and that actually the real economy uh, and the way that capitalism works in the, the so-called real economy is actually more or less fine. Whereas he would say, for instance, that, that there's the underlying dynamic of capitalist accumulation tends towards prices, c- crisis because when profitability declines then then that's when you have fictitious capital. Oh, this, is, and, this is a yes. Marxist thing about the
2: declining <laughs> yeah. rate of profit which drives me absolutely up the wall, really. Um, so, You know, your old-fashioned capitalist, you know, uh, digging the earth, blasting out of the earth gold and then accumulating it on the surface and flogging it and selling. He makes profits and profits require engagement with the land on the one hand, you know, this earth that you're blowing up. Secondly, with labor on the other, right? And his profits as a result are volatile. They go up and down. If you engage in speculation in the international capital markets, you don't make profits, you make capital gains. And capital gains rise exponentially. Mm-hmm. Who the hell wants to engage with the land and who the hell wants to engage with labour when you cannot even dirty your hands and make loads of bucks effortlessly? That's what's so wrong about mm-hmm. what the finance are. It doesn't do anything. Really. And this is why Except you gamble. argue that there's
0: a possible alliance between, say, capitalists who operate within the real economy and forces of labour. That's it's what I the, think. Yeah. I think,
2: you know, the, your old... Sort of Cross class, correct? Yeah. yeah. And, and then all my Marxist friends say to me, you know, you can't put it, because they've all been financialized. You know, Tes- Tesco's is a bank, mm, actually. Mm. Tesco's has just messed up its banking. but So there is true that they have been heavily funded. And they all think, what the hell am I doing digging up the land and employing labor when I could be fooling around in international capital markets and securitizing and all that nonsense and make loads of DOSH? So they have been compromised. But there are people who are true innovators who, who like making things and who want to sell their stuff and who wants stability in which to sell that stuff, you know, that I think we could align with and I think we should do, but, you know, the labour movement's not particularly interested.
1: Industrialists, basically.
0: Yeah, proper old
2: industrialists who make and sell things. I mean, I think that... But but I wanted to come back to your point about whether or not we have the circumstances in which we can do something about the finance system. You know, the thing that happened in, in the crisis of the 20s and the 30s was that we had leadership in the form of Frank Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the first the, on the monday of the the day after he was inaugurated he closed down the banks and <clears throat> the international financial crowd had said to him, will you please come to a conference and let's discuss how we can restore the gold stand? And he more or less said to them, go and jump in the lake or something worse. And that was devastating for the finance sector because that took the US out of everything, right? And he said he was going to put the bankers back in their box. And he did. And and it, it worked for a while. Him and he was all muddled up and, and he had a bit of austerity in 1937. The whole thing went backwards and then he went back up and, and stimulated. And things were going really well, which is why millions and millions of... People came to his funeral because he gave so many, so much hope to job to people with jobs and stuff. But really, what took us the possibility of restructuring the economy was a devastating Mm. world war. You know. And only then was the finance sector really tamed. And what I love about the Bretton Woods Conference, Ed Conway, who's the economist on Sky News, has written a wonderful book about the Bretton Woods Conference. And he said there wasn't a single banker present. Roosevelt would not allow the bank. Actually, that's not true. He had a mate who was a Chicago banker who was allowed to come and watch. But... The only people that were there were economists and they were from all over the world. And basically, they kept the finance sector out of the picture and they constructed an architecture which subordinated finance, which brought offshore capital back on shore and which restored stability. And that period, 45 to 71, is known in economics, even by the orthodox, as the golden age of Mm. economics. But it takes a world war.
1: Can I respond to that very, very, very quickly. Yeah. So we know that the growth between 45, 71, unprecedented doesn't happen before or after, record low unemployment, record growth gains, record productivity gains, productivity gains correspond more or less to wage increases for everyone. We've had productivity gains aligned with wage increases since 2000, but to the top 1%. However, however, yes, the base of that is a a policy infrastructure. In addition to that, however, we have urbanisation, we have historically cheap hydrocarbons, we have a level of supply side technological catch up where the factory apparatus of the United States can be replicated in Italy and Japan. We have women coming onto the labour market. Now, these are three or four one-off factors, which means that that period, Can never be repeated.
2: I completely agree with that. Okay, Okay. you know we have a whole range of new challenges and problems, and I have every confidence that we're clever and witty enough to do to deal with them. And they're not at all the challenges that they faced. They faced huge. They had destroyed their infrastructure. We had two hundred and fifty percent of debt, two hundred and fifty percent of British GDP. We had nothing, and we had huge foreign debts. They had huge problems, but and our problems are going to be different, right? But we cannot address our problems and all of these, because there are new things that happen, you know, aside from women coming to work. And we cannot address any of them until we can get the financial system to help us to finance all the activities that we need to save the future of humanity, essentially.
0: Yeah, so we've got, uh, I think, two minutes left, one minute left. and I suppose maybe there are two documents, I think, from Keynes, which are, are really inspiring to me, you know, that, that are really surprising even. Yes. One is Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, and the other is a, a BBC address that you quote at the end of the book in 1942, yeah. middle of the Second World War. Uh, and it's, it's uh, you know, get, gets called Anything We Can Actually Do We Can Afford. Yes. And he says, why should we not add in every substantial city the dignity of an ancient university or a European capital, an ample theatre, a concert hall, a dance hall, a gallery, cafes, and so forth? assuredly we can do this and much more. Anything we can actually do, we can afford. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably a good note on which to leave it uh, and yes. say, yeah. you know, perhaps actually we can be optimistic.
2: And if people read my book, then they'll be able to see how we can do it. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm pitiful. Thank you very much for joining Thank us this week. This pleasure. has been Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye.
1: Navarra FM is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.